Hey folks, what in the history back with a brand new episode, episode 15 coming at you. I'm Dan Brady. I'm Johnny Smith. And then these next four parts we discuss and we dive into the history of Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders and a little bit about the Spanish-American War. Um, we covered a variety of topics from uh, basically Roosevelt's bloodthirstiness for glory, um, <clears throat> the creation of the Rough Riders, and you know their training in Texas in part one. We uh, touch a lot about as bloodthirsty as he was, how much he loved his men. Yes, that is very true. Uh, then part two, we talk about them traveling to Cuba and getting their first contacts, you know, seeing the quote unquote, the elephant for the first time. Um, the whole time, uh, him being super eager. Oh, yes. Eager beaver, Teddy Roosevelt. That was one of his <laughs> nicknames that nobody ever said. Um, <laughs> then part three, we talk about the Battle of San Juan Hill. Um, he's fearless, fearless, fearless. And then in part four, we kind of uh, wrap everything up. We talk about the end of the Rough Riders, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Medal of Honor, and then we uh, we just kind of chit chat about the end of the Spanish American War a little bit. Choo choo choo. We go off the fucking rails in episode four, if we're being honest. <laughs> well. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed these episodes or these parts as much as we enjoyed recording them. Uh, please like, share, subscribe, uh, follow us on social media. The links, as always, will be in the episode description. Uh, hope you guys enjoy. Peace and love. Hi, folks. Welcome back to What in the History. I'm Dan Brady. I'm Johnny Smith. And today we are taking a dive that I'm very excited about. We are learning about Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders. Johnny, are you excited? Yeah, we got you, fuckers. We're actually talking about Robin Williams from uh, Night at the Museum. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is so dumb. <laughs> 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 wow. right. out of the gate dan's taking shots all right i mean we just sat here planted lines and that's the best you can do you wow should, okay you should, you should fire your script writer they are uh they are all uh gentiles that's why the lines were bad i got you i still love you johnny Oh, man, nice. that was shit. I want to try that over again. Hey, man, I'm really excited to learn about Teddy Roosevelt. He's such a badass dude. Uh, the most memorable thing I can think of is him getting shot while doing a speech and then finishing the speech. Like, imagine you shoot somebody, and he's up at the podium still talking shit. Right. So I'm really excited to learn about this episode, Dan. Mm-hmm. Man, uh, the moose, the bull moose himself. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about, basically, uh, Teddy Roosevelt from – you know, when uh, war was declared against uh, Spain, and then we're going to go to the end of the war. We're going to hit on Teddy, but we're also going to be hitting on the Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War itself. So we got a lot of information coming at you in these next couple of parts. Quick question before we get started. Yeah. Uh, will we be briefly touching on what caused the Spanish-American War? Yes, sir. 
Okay. <laughs> oh, undoubtedly. You got my full attention. I've been excited about these episodes for weeks now. Oh yeah, man. And that's why uh that's why I decided to do them. Uh so have you had a good weekend, Johnny? I have had a phenomenal weekend. I went to uh, I well I started driving for Lyft and that's been extremely profitable for me. Uh as well as still maintaining side work. So things are going great there. On Saturday, I went to a UFO convention and uh met a lot of people, saw a couple people speak. It was very fascinating. Saw John Venture speak. And I also saw Fred Saluga speak, who I ended up interviewing on my show, Inquisitive Minds, um, today, which will be out tomorrow, or if you're listening to this one, this drops, probably two days ago. Um, yeah. And we discussed the UFO Bigfoot connection. All right. And there was actually a Bigfoot casts brought in of footprints, and he gifted me his presentation book of the Bigfoot UFO connection. Oh, that's awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah, uh, I said to him when he handed it to me, the collection started. Man, uh, you've got a lot of stuff. All I have is uh, I did comedy last night in Warren, Pennsylvania. Hey, that's an achievement in these times. About about a, a mile from that cemetery we took a walk through not too long ago. Oh, where we did the uh, paranormal investigation. Yeah, oh, yeah. If you guys don't know that... Uh, we're we're into history and the serious stuff, but boy oh boy, do we like to fuck around with the unknown. Oh, oh, oh we like to poke it with a stick. Well, we're uh, intelligent enough to know though when it's no longer time to poke. Yep. There um, was that one river in that town we went down, man, and I was like, "Fuck this." Oh yeah, and Waterford. Yeah. Yeah. I said, "I'm not going to this fucking shore." <laughs> Uh, Waterford's a really old town around Erie, and there's a lot of ghost activity and ghost stories around there. I know Jason Ken's listening to this because he's one of our biggest supporters. Uh, shout out to Jason, who's working right now, listening to this. Um, What's up, Jason? But yeah, there's a lot of history in Waterford, and we took a walk. And we just got like the standoffish feeling the entire night. Now, Dan, uh, before we jump right into this, yeah. I'd like to give a suggestion uh, about our fans, because I know we have a couple out there. Yes. You know, um, what to call them. And I was thinking about it. And, you know, since it's a history podcast, normally they'd be considered history buffs. But I think that's too, too abrasive of a name. And I think since me and you are BFFs, we should call our fans a gender neutral term, Biffs. Biffs. What does Biff stand for? They're they're fucking big fucking friends. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're BFFs. They're history buffs, so they're Biffs. <laughs> All right. I was I was thinking uh with nerds. No, that's we we won't insult our fan base like that. <laughs> Fuck you, Johnny. I do what I want. <laughs> whatever i don't know if that's gonna stick now that i said it out loud i feel like an even bigger fucking moron so teach me something dude oh johnny your 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 brain is huge it's massive you know what though sometimes i feel like a complete fucking idiot <laughs> me too <sighs> i was driving thinking about that today I, you know i was like sometimes i feel really smart and then there's other times i do shit ass backwards and just feel like i'm so dumb <laughs> Join the club, man. <laughs> That's how I live most of my life. 
This has been the Dr. Phil section of What in the History. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Rough Riders, Teddy Roosevelt, Spanish-American <laughs> War, here we go. Um, so, the war with Spain occurred in 1898. Uh, and even though it kind of surprised everybody, there's a lot of people inside of the government who kind of knew it was coming. One of them was then Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt. Dan, quick question. At this time, were we in the government profiteering off these wars yet, or were these still uh, real struggles? Uh, this war was fought for money, yes. Okay. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, Tony Stark. <laughs> Uh, for months, he had been doing everything in his power, um, not always with the direct knowledge or approval of the secretary to make the Navy ready for the great conflict he was certain was coming. He also had let it be known um, he had no intention of observing this war from afar. Crazy as it sounded, and more than a few did think Roosevelt was crazy, this lightning rod bureaucrat intended to go where the bullets were flying. He had been waiting for a war, any war, his entire adult life. Now that it was here, nothing was going to keep him from the battlefield. Now, Dan, I think this is where me and you are going to see the split in the road as far as opinions go. Yes. Yeah, we were just talking about this. I, uh, this kind of, this, this search for internal glory on the battlefield kind of rubs me the wrong way just because like there's nothing glorifying about combat it breaks men and it kills them you know and war there's nothing glorifying about war um just he even did things in his power and as we're going to talk about later like he when the USS Maine blew up in Havana Harbor, he was one of the first ones screaming at the top of his lungs. It was the Spaniards, you know? Like, he he helped orchestrate us to move in the direction of war just because he wanted to see combat. Now, I'm not disagreeing with much of anything you said. <laughs> War's horrible. All that. I agree. However... There was a statement you made that you said, uh, war breaks men. Yeah. I can understand his feeling that if that war, you know, it doesn't break him, it's going to make him stronger as a fan of the lore of the comic book image of Theodore Roosevelt. I have in my mind, I see him as like a British Thor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, just wanting that, that battle glory, like he's a warrior. Like I, I, I can respect it without necessarily saying I support him, you know, support war. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there's kind of like a difference of opinion where this, this, uh, this search for the glory of combat um, comes from. Uh, some say it comes from because his father refused to fight in the Civil War. Um, his father yeah. refused. Yeah, uh, Theodore Senior was a uh, staunch Lincoln Republican, married to a Southern patriot from Georgia. Rather than deepen the family divide, 
be, by becoming a Yankee soldier. He paid somebody to serve in his place, an option many well-off men in the North took advantage of. Now, that didn't normally bring shame. It was just young Theodore's personal shame. Yeah, basically. Uh, Theodore Jr. would later write, I always felt that if there were a serious war, I wished to be in a position to explain to my children why I did take part in it and not why I did not take part in it. So there's definitely like a kind of a feeling of shame here. Okay. I mean, again, you know, people might disagree with me, but I can almost understand his shame. But there's, there's also this other thought that uh, Roosevelt was joined and uh, was born into a world that celebrated war, you know, like, uh, you know, the glorification you, are, of all things are, military. Um, are you saying he's a product of his environment? Basically, yes. Okay, so he's a product of the times. Like growing up, there's like um, <clears throat> pro-war songs, uh, the battle cry of freedom, and just before the battle mother, to the tragic, the vacant chair, um, the oversight pages of Harper's Weekly, and the Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper were chock full of spectacular detailed engravings as saber-wielding cavalrymen and uh, smoke belching cannons and corpse-strewn battlefields. So like, and then there's also dignified portraits of the generals that fought in the war and the glory that befell them and blah, blah, blah. So- I, Okay, I just wanna say, um, you know, <clears throat> A lot of people were a product of their time, and it doesn't mean I support them. But if we held everybody up to the standards of the day, everyone falls short. That being said, going forward, um, I get it, you know? You, like, even now, though, there's – I don't even want to say propaganda, just how they advertise it. Like, for the Marines, you know, the few, the proud, the Marines, and they look all slick and shit. Yeah, I did you know, look slick. <laughs> You know, I remember that one commercial for years. I think it was like on a chessboard or some shit. Yeah. Like, that was a badass commercial. Slaying the lava monsters and the dragons. Yeah, like, what the fuck? <laughs> what is that shit? Where, where are you having that battle? And that's why I started Inquisitive Minds. <laughs> so, in uh, 1882, as if his job as New York State's youngest assemblyman wasn't enough of a responsibility... He joined the New York National Guard, eventually rising to the rank of captain. But the Guard mostly set up camps and drilled, which is a lot like plain soldier. No enemy, no thrill, battle, no glory. So now this is a bit of a personal issue here because <clears throat> we both know guys that have served in service but have not deployed for right. whatever reason, whether it was reserves or they just didn't deploy. And a few of them have some very deep regrets, it seems like. Oh, yeah. You know, like, ah, oh, that was my, that was what I wanted to do, that type of thing. So, like, again, I see that today. I can understand why he would feel that way. Um, yeah, so then in the summer of 86, Roosevelt sniffed an opportunity to get into a real fight. At the time, he was cattle ranching in the Badlands of the Dakota Territory. Roosevelt was one of a number of well-to-do young Easterners who were drawn to the Wild West for business opportunities, 
um, and adventure. As a passionate hunter, the little Missouri River country was appealing to him with its last small herds of buffalo, as well as deer, elk, and even bighorn sheep. It Question a, for you, Dan. <laughs> it was a land of vast silent spaces, he wrote, of lonely rivers and of plains where the wild game stared at the passing horsemen. Okay. And so, go ahead. I got a question for you, brother. Yeah. It's, it's a little off topic, but uh, we're, in, we're in, you know, frontier times or what have you. We live in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> right. You going west? Probably. You sticking where you're at. I'm probably going west. Okay. I think the urge for the big outdoors would be too too much. Okay. That's a good question. Um, I'd go chase my riches. <laughs> it was it was a land of vast silent space spaces, he wrote, of lonely rivers and the plains where the what I already read that. You messed huh? me up. Um <laughs> But this uh, this opportunity served as an escape because at this point in Roosevelt's life, he had lost his first wife Alice and his mother on the same day in oh, February God. in 1884. His oh, wife to Bright's disease, which was a early classification for a kidney's disease. Oh my after, Lord, Dan! After giving birth to their daughter and his mother to typhoid fever. Holy hell! It gets worse. Uh, the page in Roosevelt's diary for February 14th, the date of these two tragic losses, contained only a black X and the words, the light has gone out of my life. Oh, I understand. Oh, God. During his brief career as a rancher, uh, Roosevelt never completely cut ties to the East or its politics, and his blood rose when he read the newspaper reports of growing tension between the United States in Mexico over the false imprisonment of American newspaper editor in El Paso del Norte, Mexico. Man, I know you did a pause there for me to say something about this, but I am still fucked up about his wife and mom dying the day his little daughter was born. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, that's that kind of heavy. That's kind of on script for life back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard enough. Take, <laughs> take it from me. It's hard enough losing a wife young, uh, and then your mother died. You know, my mom um, came over the night or the day, I guess you could say, Kate died, and she actually slept in the house for two or three days with me Aww. just to keep me company. Yeah, um, it was rough, though, but I, I thank her for that. But uh, poor Teddy Roosevelt, he seems like a, a manly, too manly type to want comfort for it. Right. Like, just give me some bourbon. Brah, I got to shoot something. So he buried himself out west, basically. Um, oh, he got the fuck out of there. Yeah, that's why. Okay. That's one of the um, deciding factors in going out ranching and stuff. My, my wife died. I started hanging with degenerates that think they're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Um Roosevelt never completely cut his ties to the East or its politics, and his blood rose when he read the newspaper reports growing tension between the United States. Um, they captured this uh, American newspaper ep uh, editor, D. 
the United States was demanding his release and Mexico was refusing. Texans called for war and rumors swirled of troops mobilizing on the both sides of the border. Roosevelt oh, dashed, dashed off a letter to Secretary of War William Endicott on August 10th, 1886, offering to raise companies of horse riflemen out here in the event of trouble with Mexico. Dan, yeah. this is in his letter. He's, I could just envision him going, I'm coming down because things are getting too cattywampus down here. <laughs> that does sound like a word he would use, yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, diplomacy prevailed. Mexico released its prisoner after a three-day trial. And he was like, damn, because he wanted to go down and shoot some Mexicans. Right. He wanted to Close shoot enough to Native Americans, Americans to him. <laughs> uh, nine, nine years would pass before he had another opportunity. That, uh, that moment came in 1895 as Spain was fighting a new insurrection in Cuba. Now, how old is he? Oh, man, he's in his 30s. Okay, so he's he's roughly our age. Right. So he's gunning for war, and we're praying nerds listen to our podcast. <laughs> hey, guys, we're just tougher back then, I guess. Um, so on March 8th, a Spanish gunboat spotted the American uh, mail ship the, uh, as it steamed past Cuba's east coast and fired upon it repeatedly. Spain knew the Cuban rebels were receiving uh, supplies from vessels, Sailing from Florida, <laughs> you know, but the males go ahead. Conflicts are always so goddamn complex. Um, but the the <clears throat> mail ship was six miles out to sea, and it was traveling north away from Cuba. Fortunately, the ship was faster and outran the gunboat. The United States demanded an apology, and Spain wasn't forthcoming with one. By this time, the thirty-six-year-old Roosevelt was back in the government in Washington and serving in Grover Cleveland's administration as a U.S. Civil Service Commissioner. Grover Cleveland? Right. So the future president? Right. You know, I know he doesn't look like this, but I always envision him as Garfield Cleveland, and just like <laughs> him as a big-ass cat. <laughs> well, he's a big-ass dude. Um, and he's like, Mondays in Congress suck. <laughs> If I remember correctly, they had to make the bathtubs in the White House bigger. I thought that was Taft. Oh, man, maybe. You know what? We're going to Google who was the fattest president while you read the next section. Um, there wouldn't be any war, uh, not now, but Americans became uh, sympathetic with Cuba's struggle for independence. Uh, three months after this, Roosevelt accepted the appointment of Assistant Secretary of the Navy, the new administration of President William McKinley. I got an answer for you, Dan. <clears throat> yeah. It was Taft, uh, and he was 5'11 and weighed 325 to 350 pounds toward the end of his presidency. Right. Fun fact, okay. I've been bigger than Taft in my life. Uh, and also, I think if President Trump was honest, he might he might be in the running for the heaviest president at some point because he was real heavy right, at one point. <laughs> Wasn't he? He was big as shit. 
<laughs> yeah, and he's six three, so that's a lot of weight. That, you can't tell me he wasn't three hundred fucking pounds. So uh, after he received this new position, uh, he he ran. He met uh, somebody who would become very important to him, uh, a man who was like minded like him, <clears throat> who wanted the glory of combat as well. Was thirty six year old Army surgeon Captain Leonard Wood. He served as personal physician for McKinley uh, and his seizures suffering wife and for the Secretary of War and his family. Hmm. Teddy and Wood first met at a Washington dinner party in June 19, 1897 and quickly became fast friends. You know what, though? That sounds like psychopaths. Like you meet at a fancy upscale dinner party and then you're like, you want the fucking blood of war on your hands? And it's like, yeah, me too. Pass the butter. <laughs> um, it, it didn't hurt that Wood was a fellow Harvard man and an excellent football player. But Roosevelt, Oh, those fucking guys. Those, you know, I've seen a couple of Ivy League guys and I've said the wrong Ivy League accidentally and they really do get all fucking weird. Uh, yeah. Um, Go fuck yourself, college jokes. boy. Uh, yeah. But Roosevelt was most impressed by Wood's experience chasing the Apache leader Geronimo 11 oh, years man. earlier. <clears throat> oh, man. He got a hard on because he hates Indians. Native yep. Americans, excuse me. Um, so <coughs> we're going to change uh, gears here. Going to talk about Cuba. Um, Cuba. Because we're going to be dealing with the Spanish-American War. It was also the context of this war was that it was the Cuban uh, War of Independence. Why do we care about Cuba, you may ask? Good um, question, Dan. Why do you think we do? Why do I think we do? Uh, yeah. Because of the whole communist thing? No, there's no communism at this time. Oh, shit. I don't know. Then maybe it could have been a good uh, military uh, installation for us. So uh, Cuba had become a Spanish colony at the arrival of Columbus, uh, Havana was briefly occupied by Britain in 1762, but was later exchanged with Spain for Florida. Uh, Spain utilized the island mainly as harbor for the Spanish fleet as it gathered and transported New World riches back to the crown. In the 19th century, following the collapse of Haiti's sugar industry, the island became a major, major sugar producer. This had several oh, effects. Yes, this had several effects, including sugar supplanting tobacco as as the major agricultural crop. The arrival okay. of increasing numbers of slaves needed for labor and a change from poverty to prosperity for most of Cuba's residents. The latter played a large role in keeping Cuba loyal to Spain when much of the rest of uh, Latin America was breaking away. Towards the end of the 19th century, however, loyalties began to change as Spanish, Spain's increasing despotism and taxation, uh, the growth of Cuban nationalism, and the Creole rivalry with Spaniards for control uh, fostered dissatisfaction with Spanish rule. So, so they're like, you know, we're doing this. This is our shit. Why should yeah. we pay you anything? That's what's going on? Basically. I uh, mean, as they're right, you know? Right. 
Um, the result was the Ten Years' War, and we're going to later see, like, as America, we're going to identify with these guys, you know, with our revolution and everything. Oh, uh, freedom! Mm-hmm. USA, USA. So this resulted in the, the Ten Years' War against Spain from 1868 to 1878, but it did not result in Cuban independence. Hmm. Okay, so what did it result in? Uh, it resulted in the devaluation of the sugar market, which subsequently prompted U.S. businessmen to become more involved. Business interests in the U.S. began to monopolize the sugar uh, market, and by 1894, 90% of Cubans' exports went to the U.S. Jeez, okay. While U.S. business interests in Cuba were increasing, the Cuba Libre movement was also gaining momentum under the movement's leader, Jose Marti, uh, Marti ex uh, established offices in Florida and New York for the purpose of buying and smuggling weapons. Huh, okay. Additionally, they also mounted a large-scale propaganda campaign that generated sympathy amongst Protestant churches, uh, Democratic farmers, although uh, U.S. businessmen called on Washington to ignore pleas for the support of the movement. Now, why why did they do that? <clears throat> Just because they didn't want to go to war again. Okay, fair enough. Goddamn um, Democrats. Uh, <clears throat> the Cuba Libre movement launched a three-pronged invasion of the island in 1895, um, but it, it didn't have the effect that the revolution was hoping for. Um, it was successful in provoking a revolutionary uprising, but it didn't have the impact that they thought it would. Um, but it just quickly evident that this was going to have to become a military campaign. Okay, so the people couldn't do it by themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, they were, they were underarmed, I'm sure, underfed, under everything. So Spain responded under the leadership of Governor General Val Valerio Weiler, who um, was a variation, used a variation of a tactic used extensively in other parts of the New World throughout Spain's occupation. Um, they sought to quell the revolution by depriving uh, the rebels with necessary supplies and assistance. He did so by ordering the relocation of certain Cuban residents uh, to areas called reconcentration areas. Um, so basically, so, they would take these revolutionaries and like move them closer to military bases or heavily populated uh, loyalist sympathizer areas, just like divide them and move them all over the island. Okay. Well, that's um, how you break shit up, divide it. This uh, effectively prevented and slowed insurgencies uh, by relocating these so-called troublemakers. Um, <clears throat> But to fuel war, uh, President William McKinley referred to this tactic as being uncivilized. He also went so far as to call it extermination. Oh, boy. That's a word they can't throw around. Right. Uh, then again, Teddy uh, was also an aggressive supporter of war with Spain. Um, he believed Cuba would be strategically important for U.S. naval domination. Additionally, he supported the liberation of the Cuban people, and he believed 
the Monroe Doctrine applied to this situation. <laughs> what is the Monroe Doctrine, you're asking yourself, racking your oh, brain? Oh, man, um, that's a great question, Dan. It is a U.S. foreign policy established in 1823 by President James Monroe. Uh, the doctrine stated that any interference, including attempts to colonize land by European nations in the Americas, would be viewed by the U.S. as an act of aggression and one that would prompt U.S. intervention. Okay. Now, I so could see how he would Spain, think that then. Spain is fucking with our cash cow. Okay, get the fuck out of here, Spain. Among the businesses affected by the revolution were shipping firms that relied heavily on trade with Cuba and that had suffered losses as a result of the revolt. They pressured Congress and President McKinley to seek an end to the revolution. Um, okay, so they wanted to shut it down. Right. From the American public's point of view, support for intervention was fostered by comparison with America's own revolutionary history. Like I said, like, oh my God, they're just like us. Uh, at that time, oh, only a little over a century old, uh, the Americans had our revolution and their, you know, their mind. Uh, U.S. Okay. attempts to peacefully resolve the situation through mediation of negotiations between Spain's government and the rebels were met with rejection. Uh, first by Spanish, who promised to give Cubans more in autonomy, uh, but failed to deliver on that promise. Then the rebels themselves rejected negotiations after a new, more liberal government in Spain offered to change the reconcentration policies in exchange for a cease, cessation, a ceasing of hostilities. I really fucked that up right there. But it was it was too late for that. It was too far gone. Exactly. So the liberal Spanish government called recalled uh, Governor General Weiler. Uh, however, this action alarmed Cubans loyal to Spain, who then planned a demonstration upon the arrival of the new Governor General Ramon Blanco. Uh, See, I, I never understood how you can love your oppressor. <clears throat> Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. But these people are probably also the ones who are benefiting from Spain's rule. Okay, that makes sense. U.S. Consul Fitzhugh Lee uh, learned about these demonstration plans and requested the uh, U.S. warship be dispatched to Cuba. The U.S. State Department dispatched the USS Maine. While docked in Havana a, <clears throat> on the early morning uh, of February 16th, 1898, lights went um uh, the the a massive explosion sunk the main, and with it hopes of negotiated peace. Uh, oh the, boy! The U.S. main was sunk by a massive explosion in the Havana Harbor. Harbor. Um, the USS Maine uh, sank at 9:40 p.m. I was reading something completely different. I'm just getting ahead of myself in my notes on February 15th, 1898. And the 350 sailors on board, uh, 266 were killed, fueled by, by what many considered overly flammatory or yellow journalism by leading journalists of the time, such as Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst, both of whom immediately blamed Spain for the explosion. The American public 
was now uh, fully focused on war with Spain. So what actually caused the explosion? <laughs> well, <coughs> well, there was a, there's been several commissions over the course of a couple of years. Originally, the first one uh, was uh, concluded in uh, March of that, uh, that year. On March 9th, um, they determined that it was a, uh, either by a mini sub, it was a torpedo or a Spanish uh, sea mine. Uh, basically because on the side of the ship, they found four uh, panels of steel Two were bent, or three were bent outward, and one was bent inward. Um, and that was later like, yep, this is it. Here we go. Uh, but later, as I've watched a couple things on this. Um, Unsolved History, a great series from Discovery Channel. They did a recreation, and they later figured out that it had come from a coal stove, which had overheated in the fucking powder keg. Uh, where they kept the black powder. Oh, wow. So it wasn't even... Right. So oh, one, that's crazy. One powder room went off, and then the other three went off. Nobody had a fucking chance. So basically, this first commission, they probably saw evidence of this, but they're just like, nope, we need to go to war. Uh, it okay. was pushed through. Um, <clears throat> I mean, not that, not that you know, America would ever do this uh, to yeah. go to war. You know... It's not like we look for weapons of mass destruction that don't exist. It's it's not like, uh, you know, we made up the Gulf of Tonkin incident to get us into Vietnam. We would never do anything like this. Such such sinister behavior. USA. USA. <laughs> <coughs> so we're talking about yellow journalism. It's this uh, brand of sensationalism. To, spin the truth a little bit to make the oh, American so, public. So, so would you call it fake news? <clears throat> yeah. It's journalism that's based upon sensationalism and crude exaggeration. Basically it's like equating murder and dismemberment with smoking pot is, is a form of yellow journalism. Yeah, man. If you're anti pot, uh, <laughs> like if you don't smoke it, I get it. But if you like, are against it, like want it illegal. What the fuck? Who hurt you? <laughs> oh, Johnny taking hot takes again. Hey, who just who hurt him? Hey, there, there, there's who I want to tell go fuck themselves. The anti pot crowd. <laughs> hey, man, we're only a half hour into this episode and you figured it out. You're getting quicker. You know what they don't know, Dan? If they're listening to this episode, they're still supporting pot. <laughs> uh, so headlines like the one published in Washington's Evening Times published well before any solid details could be reached uh, the United States were, so it's like Facebook were blown up by Spain every evidence that the main was torpedoed another mm. newspaper added 250 American sailors the food of sharks oh wow that's fucking and a again, rough way to put it Teddy was at the forefront of this uh, he was just as quick to lay blame, writing confidently to a young Harvard friend the same day, the main was sunk by an act of dirty treachery on the part of the Spaniards. 
the Navy ordered an investigation to determine what caused the explosion, but this would take a few weeks to complete. In the meantime, Roosevelt wasn't uh, providing Secretary of the Navy John D. Long with endless recommendations about preparing the Navy for war. He and his buddy Wood tried to position themselves to be a part of any invading for force once a war came. Roosevelt war wrote to the <clears throat> to the state generals three times about his desire to serve. <clears throat> I could see him getting all riled up like, we've got to get these, uh, these Spaniards. Right. Well, like I said, I mean, as we've been covering these war episodes, like war takes a, a, a certain like special storm at events and everything was just already laid out. We, uh, we had sympathies towards Cuba. We viewed uh, Spain as this big evil monster. So when this happened, it's like, yep, it was the Spaniards. It was them. Not, you know, uh, the cost of shitty uh, American ingenuity and construction of a fucking ship. Why would you diplomacy went right out the fucking window? Why would you have a coal burner around fucking explosive powder? Hey man, I get it. People are fucking stupid. USA, USA, USA. Oh my god, I love my country, but fuck me, this is terrible. (laughs) I mean, we've we've been finding a lot of their fuck ups lately. What fuck me? Ugh. 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 Uh. President McKinley was now facing intense pressure to intervene in Cuba, and among those pushing him were Roosevelt and Wood. McKinley half fondly referred to them as the war party. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. During, like, McKinley would even joke about this. During his Wood's daily visits with uh, President McKinley, McKinley would say, well, have you and Theodore declared war yet? Wood would usually replied, uh, no, Mr. President, we have not, but we think you should take steps in that direction. Oh, they were ready to go. Oh, they were one foot out the door. Uh, On April 11th, in a message to Congress, uh, McKinley asked for authorization to end the hostilities between the Cuban insurgents and the Spanish government and to establish a new stable government for the island, using the force of American arms if necessary. If you believe that Spain would um, would uh, desist their actions without the use of force, though McKinley, a Civil War veteran who dreaded the suffering and death that war would bring, still had hope of avoiding armed co- conflict. Okay, so he's been through the bullshit. He he doesn't want right. anymore. Uh, Teddy so. Roosevelt would rate. Right in his diary, uh, the president still feebly is painfully trying for peace. Huh. Feebly. Wow. So he he really wanted it, wanted it. Yes. Like I said, uh, he, he just, he, he, he was such a a hound for this glory that he had only read about. It's a shame that he was pushing the whole fucking country. Yep. They should have had like MMA, mountain man MMA shit back then. Roosevelt was also like this big figure too, because people know about his exploits. People know about him. He was, he was a very, uh, he had a very magnetic personality. Okay. He, he seems like it, like the way he's spoken about it is just, it's crazy. 
Right. Um, <clears throat> so on April 19th, it passed a joint resolution. Uh, Congress passed a joint resolution demanding that Spain get out of Cuba once and for all. It also empowered the president to use the entire land and naval force of the United States to make it so. Uh, Spain responded by declaring war on April 23rd, and Congress followed with its own formal war declaration two days later. Now came the critical work of forming not only a war strategy, but quickly mobilizing an invasion force. Yeah. I have the Navy in good shape, Roosevelt scrawled in his diary, but the Army is awful. The War Department is in utter confusion. Wow. he I mean, he's not pulling any punches. I'll give him that. Yeah. He's like, they're a fucking wreck down there. I don't know what the fuck they've been doing. Then on, yeah. Then on <laughs> April 22nd, uh, Congress passed a bill to temporarily increase the military, including a provision for 3,000 volunteer, uh, volunteers possessing special qualifications from the country at large. This position... Provision was added by a Wyoming senator who believed the army would benefit from some regiments composed of cowboys and mountaineers from out west. Oh, good lord! That if that doesn't scream fucking America, I don't know what does. The fucking cowboys will end it. Uh, Send these goddamn good old boys over there to last them. It lasts them Spaniards up. Did you over. see that movie where they defeated aliens? They can do anything. You know, I got I hate that fucking movie, but for a different reason. Um I had uh was with my wife and we both got sick as dogs and because yeah. we moved into this new spot. So for 3 days I was in and out of fucking consciousness all hours of the goddamn day and we were waiting on the cable man to come hook up our cable and he wasn't due till the third day. So I watched that movie in bits and pieces off and on in and out of fucking a coma consciousness for three fucking days. I hate it. I hate that stupid fucking movie. I hate that premise. But when I told my mother the name of the movie and the premise, she lost her shit. She was like, what? How's it going to beat an alien with a six shooter? Oh my God. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Uh, awesome. <laughs> uh, so secretary of war, Russell Algier was aware, um, of Roosevelt's desire to take part in the coming campaign. Roosevelt had also had made that annoyingly clear. So on Saturday, April 23rd, uh, Algier called Roosevelt into his office. The 3,000 uh, at-large volunteers, he told them, would be divided into three regiments of mounted riflemen to be recruited in the Western territories. Would was Roosevelt accept uh, command of one of these regiments you're fucking right he would uh, he couldn't accept at least oh! not the colonelcy after six weeks in the field roosevelt explained that he would have no qualms about leading a regiment but the war might be over by then and as rapidly as things were moving right now the organizing and the outfitting of a new regiment as well as roosevelt's own military education would be best served with an experienced officer at the reins that man was Roosevelt's bestie, uh, Leonard Wood. <clears throat> mm. If the Algier would appoint Captain Wood the regiment's colonel, Roosevelt would happily accept the lieutenant colonelcy, uh, the second in command. 
uh, Roosevelt's refusal of the colonelcy uh, came across to Algier as pure stupidity. Take the command, he insisted, and he would appoint Wood Lieutenant Colonel. As for organizing the regiment and getting into fighting trim, it was simple. Just order Wood to do the work, but Roosevelt strongly objected. I did huh. not wish to rise on any man's soldiers, Roosevelt wrote later. Uh, he refused to hold any position where anyone else did the work. Algier was flabbergasted. Roosevelt's ego was substantial, but here the secretary was handing him a, a colonelcy, his own regiment, a chance to grab all the glory. And Roosevelt wouldn't take it. Not only that, Roosevelt was urging another man and his steed. The secretary ended the meeting cordially, saying he would, would seriously consider Roosevelt's request. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Because it's like, you wanted all this bullshit, now you're not going to take this, dude? Right. Uh, in less what than 20, 24 hours on Monday morning, April 25th, Algeria informed Roosevelt that he would appoint Wood Colonel of the Regiment. Roosevelt then agreed to accept the appointment as Lieutenant Colonel until the regiment was recruited. However, he would continue to fulfill his duties as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, at which time he would resign. Okay, so when they're ready, he's done and going to war with them. Right. Okay. Getting a so, command. So he's just in my in my mind now. I'm thinking of him like, look, he's just straight war. I want to go to war. Like y'all ain't ready. When you get your shit together, come find me and we'll go to war. Uh, right. Uh, getting a command was one thing. Getting that command recruited, fully outfitted, and then sitting and uh, setting soldiers on Cuba's beaches with the army's first wave was going to be near uh, uh, near impossible. To begin with, the ordnance and quartermaster departments were sure to see a mad rush for weapons, uniforms, and accruements, some of which were in short supply, and moving the recru recruits from rendezvous points in the far western territories to a single lo location where they could be organized and trained would take time as would purchasing hundreds of cavalry mounts. Okay. And of yeah, course, obviously, it's going to take time. Right. And, of course, once they got to Cuba, Wood and Roosevelt's regiment would be jockeying for a place along the regular army units, state national guard units, and the other two cowboy regiments. If, as Roosevelt expected, the war was short, many of the volunteer units would never see action. Any trifling delay or snafu could knock theirs out of the hunt. Uh, but the two friends started with a decided advantage. First, they were for the moment both in Washington, close to the Army personnel they would need to call upon for their various wants. Second, they were Roosevelt and Wood. Their close relationships and administration from the president on down had already gotten them their own command. And with the war Okay, so they had a lot of juice. Yes. Uh, and okay. with the War Department, they had a lot of stuff in pocket. Uh, now in a frenzied state, Secretary Russell Algier was more than happy to give them a free hand. I will say I don't like the puppetry here. I do not like it. Yeah. Uh, the Secretary would say, go, go right ahead and don't let me hear a word from you until your regiment is raised. Okay, so just I don't want to hear about it until you're ready? Yeah. 
uh, Wood okay. promptly planted himself in the Secretary of War's office, where he sent and answered a flurry of telegrams concerning the raising of 780 men authorized for his regiment. Under the Secretary's name, he asked for uh, he asked the governor of New Mexico Territory for four troops and two from Arizona Territory. Now these troops were companies, so it's not Man. like. So it's not like four guys are coming from Arizona and, you know, so on and so forth. Okay. You know what? Can we just uh, – I want to take a second and just say, man, I am thoroughly enjoying this episode. Good. I'm glad you are. I, I definitely am. This shit is wild, and I didn't know much about it. Uh, learning something new? Yeah, like I didn't know much about any of this, like the Spanish-American uh, War, none of this. I didn't know – like, I knew a little bit about Roosevelt, but I didn't know he was, like, uh, doing puppet master shit. Yeah. Yeah, and I really didn't realize, like, I kind of thought his aggressiveness was part of him, but I didn't realize he was, like, war bloodthirsty either. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like I said, I, I understand, you know, his dad was a personal shame to him. He didn't get to go over and fight. I know a lot of guys without regret, so... He said, fuck it. I'll, he did a Thanos. He said, I'll do it myself. <laughs> and when uh, officials from the Native American territory, present-day eastern Oklahoma, complained that they were not included in the call for volunteers, they were asked to contribute to troops. <clears throat> the regiment's U.S. Uh, military designation was the first U.S. volunteer cavalry, but within days, the press were calling it Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Oh, of course. Of course. Uh, this is like a wrestling gimmick. Right. The triple Like R. when David Arcade came and became the champion in WCW. Arquette. Yeah, whoever. Fuck him. He's not a wrestler, so it doesn't matter. He is now. What's he going to do? Beat me up? He's wrestling now. Like, legit. You know, this, this is public. Um I'll I'll stand on my uh, I'll stand on myself here and I'll say I will beat the shit out of David Arquette. Yeah, I don't know, yeah, man. Go I've, I've seen some of the ma some of the matches he's had lately, and he's actually took it upon himself to learn how to wrestle. Yeah, that's all well and good. Hit, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the fucking mouth. So there are other clever nicknames <laughs> you're gonna like, like making enemies out here. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got the CBs coming to your door, David Arquette. Ugh. I publicly stated how much I dislike Vin Diesel. Uh, don't don't call me when these people show up at your door. Man, they don't got time to show up at my door. They're not going to come to Beaver Falls just to catch an ass whooping. <laughs> um, so, nicknames, other nicknames for the Cowboy Regiment. <laughs> You're going to love these. Uh, Teddy's Terrors. Teddy's Tufts, Roosevelt's Red Hot Roarers. And the Teddy's Tufts sounds like a gay porn. <laughs> not uh, not Roozy's Red Hot Roarers. <laughs> that does too. That sounds like a, that sounds like a, uh, what's that movie with uh, the, uh, the drag stuff? Yeah. It sounds like a Rocky Horror Picture Show porn. <laughs> um, and the ghastly Rooseveltians. But Rough Riders, thank that's, God, on. stuck. That's my favorite. Say that one again. Rooseveltians. Yes. The, what was it, Ghastly? G no, that's just 
uh, one of the words that was used. It, it's just like the ghastly name, like it's so oh, okay. fucking corn. <laughs> so it was the Rooseveltians. <laughs> Basically. That's um, a regal name, dude. I would want to be, you know, what did you fight in the war? I was a Rooseveltian, thank you. So officially, uh, these recruits were supposed to be, quote, frontiersmen, uh, possessing special qualifications as horsemen and marksmen. Uh, but so these Roosevelt are the cowboys. Supposed to be. Uh, but Roosevelt huh. was quick to tell the press that the recruits did not have to be cow punchers, even though these at-large volunteer units were being referred to as cowboy regiments. Above all else, he said, they must be good men. <laughs> and okay, that's good. Desperate characters and reckless mountaineers and plainsmen will not be enlisted. And it went, went without saying that no, again, uh, we're going to talk about the dark period in American history. Um, black men were not to be enlisted. They were not allowed. Uh, the U.S. military was not desegregated at this time. It fucking sucks. I wish it was different, but unfortunately, uh, that's how it is uh, in 1898. I like the way you put it. Um, so Western governors were eager to send men Roosevelt's hold on, hold on, hold on, Dan. So, in that last announcement, you know, he was like, uh, "No, no people out of their minds and shit, right? No off right. people, desperate men. No, he, so essentially, nobody hungry for war. Essentially, no. So like no, nobody like myself. No, uh, you know, like isn't that contradictory of him? Mm, he he's basically talking like robbers and murderers and stuff like that honestly though when you want to go to war to get that bloody battle that 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 you know right. that glory you're like a pre-murderer right <laughs> i mean that's that's a weird way to put it but you know nobody that's already killed just if you want to kill exactly um so uh some of these governors were eager to send men to roosevelt um, some of them also took an active role in uh, soliciting specific recruits. Uh, New Mexico's governor, Miguel Otero, uh, designated, hey, Otero, that's the first family that uh, BTK murdered. Um, oh, that's an unfortunate connection. Uh, as the rendezvous point, he designated Santa Fe as a rendezvous point for the territory's four troops because I want to personally inspect every man that every man that leaves uh only you know those were some tough motherfuckers though dan you're gonna like this this is a quote from 1898 uh this a1 shit ain't nothing new uh he <laughs> assured the secretary of war that quote only a1 men would be accepted okay one of the men that otero had in mind was famed lawman pat garrett do you know who Pat Garrett is? The name sounds familiar. He is the one who killed Billy the Kid. Uh, but the 47-year-old Allegedly. Garrett, allegedly. But, but the 47-year-old Garrett, sheriff of Dona Anna County, was in the midst of a manhunt for the murderers of a prominent local prosecutor, and it was not a good time to go to Cuba. And the lawman already had enough notoriety to last a lifetime and beyond. Man, like just... Just think about how tough 
those people were back then. Right. You know, and then the tough, like the manly men, because the bravado, you know, I'm a cattle rancher or I'm a bounty hunter. Oh, we can sign up to fight for the country. We're going. And like, they lived tougher lives than us. They were just, and the age didn't matter as much as it does now. You know, you could be 40 something and be as tough as fucking nails and join the service then. Like, it's, Um, it's just crazy to me. And their skills where they were marksmen and like, good on horses and shit like that's wild self-raised men uh the men rushing to sign up did represent all manner of society they were miners lawyers stenographers actors printers carpenters saddle makers electricians barbers jewelers bakers railroad workers school teachers painters and to be sure cowboys just a little bit of everybody yep you know, I find, well, not necessarily, because I think it's an interesting uh, combination of the artist becoming the soldier and vice versa, especially right. now that I've gotten to know a few more uh, soldiers that have become artists. Mm-hmm. It, it, you wouldn't traditionally think that, you know, I know. Um, gotta, gotta put our pain and our passion somewhere, man. I know stereotypically you think of artists like a uh, weak people, but that's very not the case. Oh, for sure. Um, so not all these people were high members of society, right? According to one rough writer, certain of his comrades uh, had joined uh, because they had either skipped bail or wanted for horse stealing or worse, had killed someone. Um, that was indeed true of Oklahoma outlaw Jim <laughs> Cook a member of Notorious Cook Gang, led by his brother Bill. Jim had escaped from the Cherokee National Penitentiary uh, in Native American territory during the previous winter where he had served ha- uh, half of an eight-year manslaughter sentence. That's still not a bad manslaughter sentence. Uh, the 23-year-old fugitive became a member of Troop L, which was raised at Muskogee. Uh, he even used his real name. Another man uh, want, uh, who joined up was later startled and crestfallen to bump into the Arizona lawman who had been on his trail. Oh, um, boy. The two men's names are unknown, but the story of their encounter was told again and again. Well, the wanted man said, you've got me at last. How do you mean I've got you, the lawman said. Why, you have. You came for me, didn't you? I didn't come for you, said the lawman. I'm here to fight under Roosevelt, same as you. I don't know you except as a soldier. You mean you're not my enemy anymore? No, sir. I haven't any enemies now but Spaniards. And you That's haven't, pretty dope. And you ain't going to give me up? Not in a hundred years. There's my hand on it, comrade. That's dope as fuck. On May 4th, Leonard Wood called at the White House to see the president one last time. The two took a long walk on the White House grounds and would brief McKinley on his dizzying efforts of the last few days to raise and equip the Rough Riders. The surgeon was pleased that he had been able to secure model 1896 Craig Jorgensen carbines for his men. They were standard issue for the regular cavalry and having the same firearms increased the odds that his regiments would be brigaded with the regulars. This was critical because the regulars would likely see most of the action in a brief conflict. Hmm. Moreover, 
the rifle fired a uh, 30, 40 round using smokeless powder. This meant that his men would not have to wave a cloud of white smoke after pulling the gun's trigger, unlike the National Guard units, which were Gave an advantage. With, yep, with older guns using black powder cartridges. It also meant <laughs> that their positions would not be revealed to the enemy by the telltale puffs of gun smoke. Oh shit, stealth mode. For sad. <laughs> For sidearms, Wood had ordered the time-tested and nearly indestructible model 1873 Colt single-action army revolver. It had a five-and-a-half-inch barrel, making it easy to get the gun in and out of its holster and fired a 45 caliber cartridge, which could punch a good-sized hole in just about anything close up. <laughs> That's not the only thing with the five-and-a-half-inch barrel. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God, Johnny, out. Get the fuck out. Um, another advantage was that most Westerners either owned a... Could you calm down? I'm trying to read. Uh, the, the, the Westerners either owned a cult of their own or were at the very least thoroughly familiar with it. Uh, Roosevelt yeah. put it, the men were armed without with what might be called their natural <coughs> weapon, the revolver. Of course, the cavalrymen were famous for their sabers, but it'd take precious time to train the men to use them efficiently, and the cavalry saber probably wasn't very practical considering the mostly unbroken horses that would be purchased for the troops. For the first week or Damn. so, yes. Question for you. In yeah. the service, in the Marines, do you learn how to sword fight? No. Oh. Outside, uh, outside of uh, like firearms and explosives, do you train with any weapons? Just like a knife and a bayonet. Yar. Okay. <laughs> um, but instead of sabers, wood wanted machetes, the same kind that were used in the Cuban sugar fields and were being carried by the Cuban insurgents. One eyewitness to the Mercedes use in combat reported that almost everyone struck at all is struck on the side of the back of the neck. The blow almost severs the head from the body. I will say I support the machetes. We're not going to reveal who, but someone keeps a machete in their car. <laughs> Gee, I wonder who that could be. Um, I don't know. There's also an axe. And two metal baseball bats. Like, I'm pretty much prepared for whatever we're doing back there in that car. <laughs> um, it turned out these Cuban machetes were made by the Collins Company of Hertford, Connecticut, and Wood directed that they be purchased for the Rough Riders. As for uniforms, Wood was told flatly by the quartermaster general that none were to be had. Uh, but Ooh. he was referring to the Army standard blue wool uniform. These wouldn't be good for Cuba. They'd be hot as fuck. Uh, he wanted the model 1884 fatigue uniform made of brown canvas. Those were available, he was told, although the shirts would have to be regular, uh, regulation dark blue wool flannel pullover. Uh, good Lord. There were plenty of those too, and as one rough rider remembered, they were hotter than hell. <laughs> I bet. Uh, San Antonio, Texas was selected as the rendezvous, rendezvous point for his troops. It was the home of the Alamo. It was the location of Fort Sam Houston and the San Antonio Arsenal. 
uh, where they could draw what supplies they needed. Additionally, San Antonio was surrounded by horse country that was not far from the Gulf of Mexico in case they needed to board a transport to Cuba. Dan, I heard something I've never heard before. What the hell is the Alamo? Oh, you forgot about the Alamo? Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't remember. God damn it, Johnny. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Texas. (laughs) Oh, man, I hate you so much. (laughs) We're having a good time here, folks. That's what we like to do. Okay. Back to our story. You know who didn't forget about the Alamo? (laughs) Who's that? Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, You don't say. So those applications um, for Rough Riders eventually numbered more than 6,000. Everybody wanted to serve with Teddy Roosevelt. The Secretary of War had only allotted the regiment 780 men. Um, Teddy would say, we have room for another man unless some of those we have get out. Uh, now just the, just think, just think if like The Rock grew his hair out like he did in the movie Hercules, uh-huh. and was like, "I'm gonna go to war. I want men to come with." Like, there would be a lot of fucking nut jobs and meatheads that look like crazy people joining him just to be like, "Yeah, I served under The Rock." Right. Uh, Roosevelt <laughs> said, "By George, our young men, our young Americans, are all right yet." Roosevelt was also elated to learn that the number of recruits allotted uh, from the Rough Riders just just a couple days later had been raised to 1,000. Although this good news would not help the men whose applications spilled all over Roosevelt's desk, it did, however, help the New York clubmen, Ivy Leaguer, Leaguers, and assorted friends of Roosevelt, who he had already promised a spot for in the regiment ignoring that they clearly were not from the Western territory. So this is another thing he does that I don't like. He he just goes to his millionaire, his rich buddy. He's like, hey, you want to fight? I got a spot for you. Yeah, I everyone knows a guy like that that's producing a show and just gives out way too many spots. <laughs> Curse. <clears throat> um. <laughs> hey, I'm throwing shade at celebrities. My man's throwing shade at nobodies. <laughs> I fucking like that. Chris Kettler, if you're listening, fuck you. Um, oh wow. We took a turn. Whatever. You know man. who didn't say you know who didn't say fuck Chris Kettler? Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, he probably would have hated him. Um, oh my god. <laughs> among these were Woodbury Kane, uh champion yachtman, former Harvard football player, and soul. I almost said soulmate of Roosevelt, uh, schoolmate of Roosevelt, David Dade Goodrich, son of the rubber manufacturer and captain of Harvard's varsity boat crew, Sumner Gerard, Harvard Lodge student, and former captain of Yale's track team. Uh, You're going to like this. Oh, shit. He did Harvard and Yale? Mm -hmm. What? You're going to like this name. I already know it. Uh, when I it. read this name, I was like, Johnny's going to be so excited. Uh, Reginald Ronalds. He was a Yale football star and son of London socialite. <clears throat> uh, Mary Frances Ronalds. Craig- you can't tell me that's not a sexy name. What's <laughs> your name? Hi, I'm Reginald Ronalds. <laughs> and I'm here to lay the pipe. Um, wow, he he's not crude. He's classy. He's <laughs> like... 
We all have needs with each other. Mr. Ronald knows about needs. Right. Yeah. So as you see, he's getting his friends. And yeah, a lot of these guys are athletics and stuff, but like these units. He was the captain, son. Mm. What team was it at Yale or whatever it was? So adding to, yeah, of Yale. um, I mean, these guys were all obviously superior specimens, blessed to his parents. But Again, my issue is that these units were supposed to be cowboys, not, you know, I'm from Harvard. Do you want yeah, some I don't, caviar? I don't, you know, I'm not saying people from Ivy Leagues aren't tough or anything, because, you know, whatever. But, like, I don't think you should get those types of individuals. Like, you shouldn't be able to pick out trust fund kids. It's like it's like if you make it big and you, guys you haven't heard from in years want tickets to your Netflix special. Oh, yeah, I'm telling everybody now, there's like seven people, maybe eight that'll get tickets that, that, that are comics. Uh, the rest of you guys, order it, stream it, whatever, pirate it. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> so adding considerably to Roosevelt's anxiety, because uh, he's still in Washington, um, Wood went to go, you know, meet the regiment in uh, San Antonio. So there is talk that the army was within days of launching its invasion of Cuba. This, if you work for the government, you are surrounded by rumors every day. Like when I bet, I was, man. When I was in Iraq, the rumor was that we were packing everything up and going and helping in the reinvasion of Afghanistan. When I was on ship, the rumors were that we were invading Syria. You know, it just rumors always fly. I believe it. I believe it. I imagine you get some crazy rumors, too, some weird ones. So the rumors were that they were within days of the invasion of Cuba. Cuba. If this was true, uh, the Rough Riders would likely ship out from Galveston, Texas. And he, uh, Roosevelt, was concerned that they wouldn't be ready in time. And he was even more nervous about his own prospects. He said, I suppose you will be keeping me here for several days longer uh, Roosevelt continued to wood, but there's one thing, old man, you mustn't do, and that is run any risk of having me left when the regiment starts to Cuba. Of course, I know you want to do it intentionally, but remember that at any cost, I must have a chance to get with you before you start. Okay, I dig it, you know. So on the night of Thursday, May 12th, uh, Roosevelt was finally able to board a train in Washington for San Antonio. But no matter how fast the train went, he felt like uh, he wasn't getting there fast enough. He wrote to, wrote to his sister, uh, Corinne, it will be better if we don't get to Cuba. Oh, my God. He's losing his goddamn mind. It's like a kid's the night before Christmas. It's like, fuck, I can't sleep yet. Fuck, sleep, sleep, sleep. Right. Uh, so the Rough Riders were already the most famous unit in the U.S. Army. But when the first contingents arrived at San Antonio's International Fairgrounds, first off, how the fuck is it international? It's not like they have an <laughs> airport. <laughs> what are they hosting a baseball game with France? What the fuck? Um, yep. Japan. <laughs> oh, they would kick our ass. Uh, <laughs> they found they had no uniforms, no weapons, no tents, no blankets, and no no horses. 
what they did were plenty have were plenty of curious town folks and that turned out to be something of a circus naturally many of those gazing upon the enlisted men had expected to see the wild and woolly west in the flesh there are a few though who did not think all that highly of the wild part Yes, they are characters, someone in the crowd was overheard to proclaim. They shoot first and investigate after. So the officers and men of the Rough Riders uh, tried to dispel these rumors as anything other than just fiction. Uh, Captain William Bucky O'Neill of Prescott, Arizona, told a San Antonio newspaper men, there are no outcasts and no desperados in the Arizona column. Another trooper chimed in, we are not long-haired roughs like some people expect to see. <laughs> long-haired roughs. D damn hippies. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the New Mexico contingent brought their own mascot, a gifted dog which had been making railroad trips all over the West for years, or so one newspaper claimed. Trooper George Hamner. <laughs> yeah, said, you can just say that. <laughs> said the scruffy lap dog had been snatched when their train stopped at Hutchinson, Kansas. The dog's name was said to be Salisbury, but was quickly changed to Cuba. Wow. Okay. This <laughs> is this is a weird part of the story. On May 9th, my birthday and 10th, most of the college men and men. Happy birthday, Dan. Was, wasn't it last episode we covered a date that was your birthday, too? Uh, it was close to it. It was in February. Uh, the train carrying 21-year-old student Jay Ogden Wells and 11 of his classmates pulled into San Antonio on May 9th. Um so the Easterners arrived. The Rough Riders at the fairgrounds had been tipped off that the Harvard men were in town and gathered quickly when they heard the trolley's bell. Because these guys have never seen, you know, what wealth looks like. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a um, spectacle. As the everybody, as Wells and the others passed through the gates, cheers and shouts erupted for these college boys who quickly found themselves surrounded by 200 jostling troopers each of one wanting to shake their hands. Wells later wrote that these Southwestern Rough Riders were a splendid set of men, tall and sinewy, with resolute, weather-beaten faces and eyes that look a man straight in the face without flinching. <laughs> I don't even understand. I guess that he was unnerved by that at first. You know, maybe not used to that, I guess. Like a big rough man from Texas. Yeah, man. I mean, they're cool. We're all humans. Yeah. Um, so the Easterners re earned the respect of the other men by willingly following orders and cheerfully undertaking a variety of chores, be it digging a ditch or hauling hay for the horses. I'm not liking this. I'm not liking this because I know <laughs> it, it, in my mind, I just imagine them like having fun cosplaying. Mm-hmm. We're working men. Uh, <clears throat> we dug a trench, Mom. Colonel Wood uh, kept an eye on the college boys and clubs men and wrote to his wife, you, you would smile to see the New York swells sleeping on the ground and on the floor of the pavilion we have without blankets doing kitchen police for a troop of New York's cowboy cowboys, all working together and all as chummy as can be. The I mean, that's nice. I get maybe I'm judging them harshly, but that seems nice. The fairgrounds had been selected 
uh, for this rendezvous uh, because there was room for hundreds and hundreds of tents for the officers and men. <clears throat> Though at the time they lacked blankets, which like everything else were in transit, forced nearly all, <clears throat> all the Rough Riders to be chummy uh, cuddle buddies. Uh, the few blankets that could be scrounged up. <laughs> oh, my God. Some of which were saddle blankets and pads borrowed from the civilian mule packers. Each had to be shared by two or three men. Some I guess troopers, you want to be in that middle sandwich then. Uh, oh, yeah, baby. Uh, some troopers <laughs> chose to sleep in the hay stacked next to the exposition building, while others lucky enough to have blankets the Harbor Boys had came prepared with their own rubber ones, grabbed armfuls of hay to place under themselves. <clears throat> Lieutenant huh. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt stepped off his train at San Antonio at 7.30 a.m. on Sunday, May 15th. His new tan uniform with bright yellow standing collar had, already, had hardly increased and stood sharply in the morning sun. It was one of the several he had custom ordered from Brooks Brothers of New York. Little fun fact, his uniforms came from <laughs> Brooks Brothers. Um, you know, he was feeling himself in that uniform. Oh, dude, it's – I'm going to be open and say it's a sexy-looking uniform. I don't know if you've ever looked at <laughs> pictures of Rough Riders and stuff, but it – I, I don't think hand. I've seen it, no. <clears throat> yeah? Um, don't kink shame me, Johnny. Uh, Army officers. Hey, I didn't. I didn't say anything. <laughs> Army officers were responsible for purchasing their own uniforms, horses, saddles, and weapons, and that suited Roosevelt just fine. <clears throat> Later in the morning, Colonel Wood and Major George Dunn came to escort Roosevelt to the camp. Um, I also want to. Uh, take this moment in case anybody comes at us for not fully reporting the truth here. Roosevelt had a black valet, which is just basically a servant named Marshall. He was a veteran of the 9th Cavalry. He carried several bags. And then, <clears throat> so basically, uh, Roosevelt showed up with the servant. We call it what it is. He came with a slave. Yeah. Uh, well, he was paying the guy. So yeah, I'm still semantics. I'm, I'm sure he was treated very nicely. Yeah. Uh, later that morning, uh, again, Wood and Major Dunn came to escort Roosevelt to the camp. The 42-year-old Dunn was a Washington lawyer who had received his commission through the influence of President McKinley. Uh, Roosevelt's wall tent stood next to the next to Woods. The regiment quartermasters. An adjunct first lieutenant Tom Hall was temporarily bunking there and would have to change quarters. Roosevelt did not like the idea of putting the officer out of a tent, however, and insisted it was plenty big enough for the both of them. Hall suddenly found himself with, quote, tenting with the most remarkable man I have ever met. I'm sure. So again, like I mentioned, he, Roosevelt was a figure. Uh, the San Antonio Daily Express fawned over him. Uh, this is a quote from an article. Theodore Roosevelt is only about 35 years old, but he has been a Western Plainsman, a New York businessman, a reformer, a politician, an author, and several other things. But above all, he is an American gentleman and a patriot. He will doubtless have a bright place in history as the man who resigned the comfortable, lucrative, and distinguished position of a 
assistant secretary of the Navy to go to the thick of battle. You know, because, I've heard that that type of argument for someone else. Oh yeah. He gave up his rich, comfy life as a billionaire to serve the American people. Oh my God, we're back to this. Shut the hell up, John. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've heard. That's I've heard that argument. I was gonna think you were gonna talk about Pat Tillman, who was a former football player that gave his life for the United States by being shot by one of his own soldiers. But hey, you do you, boo-boo. Oh no, Pat Tillman has all my respect, man. Um, his death was very unfortunate, but his sacrifice is beautiful. Amen. He would go on to, uh, they would go on to say he possesses an independent fortune, but he really has no use for it. He is essentially a man of action. He is shrewd, resourceful, courageous, and is capable of both planning campaigns in a masterly manner and carrying out his plans. <clears throat> so the United States has a big rock hard uh, hard on for Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. But uh, Roosevelt made no effort to hide his inexperience as a cavalry officer. During drills, he was always seen holding the thick cavalry drill manual and loudly practicing various commands, completely obvious to the troopers just steps away. His boyish enthusiasm for any talk was contagious, and he talked down to no man unless he deserved it. A journalist put it best, uh, Roosevelt was the greatest mixer among the people that his country has ever produced and probably will ever produce. He was at ease, at ease with king and cowboys, presidents and paupers. Huh. So he was very relatable to everybody. So, Dope. so based on that, I, I would want to say that he, he treated his, uh, his valet, uh, his manservant marshal with respect. Uh, that's what I want to believe. I don't know if that actually happens. It, they do mention Marshall, or I will mention Marshall a couple more times, but I can't tell you what the man's quality of life was. Uh, I refuse to believe from this description that Tesley Roosevelt would treat this man as anything less. Honestly, though, um, the way he felt about Native Americans, I could definitely see him feeling a certain way about Black people, and if that dude accidentally gets abused, like it's not going to ruin Teddy's day. Right. Um, so Roosevelt quickly won over the men of the Rough Riders. Uh, Trooper Kenneth Robinson, a Scotsman and a cousin by marriage to Roosevelt's sister. Gee, I wonder how he got into Rough Riders. Observed, <laughs> the men always do their best when he is out. He would be amused indeed if he heard some of the adjectives and terms applied to him. Meant to be the most complimentary, but hardly fitting for publication. Trooper Alvin C. Ash stayed far away from those salty adjectives and writing to his mother about Roosevelt. He simply said that the Lieutenant Colonel was, quote, the most magnificent man I ever saw. Jesus Christ, everybody loved this dude. Uniform and gear had begun arriving a couple of days before Roosevelt, although in a haphazard manner. One day the men would get gloves and mess pants. The next it would be rubber pon rubber ponchos and cotton undershirts. Uh, three troops went for days without knives and forks and did the best they could with their fingers or whatever they could scavenge to make do. Blankets finally showed up on May 13th, and the brown canvas uniforms were issued the next day, each man receiving 
coat and trousers, canvas leggings, and one pair of socks, one pair of shoes, and the western looking model 1889 campaign hat. Underwear, underwear, underwear and wool shirts were still in transit. Man, that sucks. And an item of, of apparel that was not army issue but became a Rough Rider significant uh, was a bandana. Probably some cowpunchers decided they couldn't part with their silk bandanas, bandanas and simply wore them with their uniforms. It was a perfect touch for a body of cowboy cavalry, and soon troopers were taking the trolley downtown to buy bandanas. Roosevelt oh sported a blue bandana with white polka dots. Oh, wow. That, that, <laughs> that reminds me of January's dive subject, uh, Dusty Rhodes. You know, like, uh, I don't know if you remember in the early 90s when he was at WWE and uh, he was like the working man. He had those fucking polka dot uh, underwear. Yes. Yes, I do remember that. Um, an item of uh, the coveted Craig's and Colt revolvers were distributed to the men on May 19th and 20. But it was the uh, arrival of two menacing-looking machine guns that caused the biggest stir in camp. Manufactured by Colt <coughs> of Hartford, Connecticut, the same company that made the regiment's revolvers, these gas-fired, belt-fed automatic weapons were gifts courtesy of the millionaire recruits. See, this, this is a thought that's weird to me, is that these guys could buy their own weapons. Like, they just, out of pocket, uh, yeah. a group of them bought machine guns. Like, maybe that was a strategy that we didn't think of when he let his millionaire buddies in. Yeah. Um, each we'll one have of these, crazy firepower. Right. Uh, each gun could fire 500 rounds in a minute flat, and at 3,000 yards, the bullets would tear, quote, tear human beings to pieces. Oh, boy. that's a I, I do not like that description. It's a very true description there, sir. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, well, you know, just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's wrong. Oh, no, it's wrong. I agree with you. It is wrong, but that's exactly what it does. Uh, the Winchester Ooh. repeating arms. We're getting very, very, uh, you know, deep here on this episode. The Winchester yeah, repeating arms company of New Haven, Connecticut, not to be outdone by its heart for rival, shipped a weapon to San Antonio but it was not intended for the whole regiment. It was a gift. Who do you think it was a gift for? Teddy fucking Roosevelt. Yes, sir. It was a model 1895 Winchester lever action carbine specifically made for Roosevelt. Sexy, sexy weapon, Johnny. I bet, man. Um, I bet. I would love to see that. It sported a nickel steel barrel and English walnut stock with a saddle ring mounted on the left of the receiver. Most important is chambered as the same round as the Craig's. The local Winchester dealer and several Antonio citizens made the presentation at Roosevelt's tent. Like, hey, Teddy, are you up? Like, what the fuck do you want? I'm sleeping. We got a gun for you. Woo, boy. That's pretty cool, though. I mean, uh, that's, that's wild. They're just like, let's make this man but a gun. He got this gun or this rifle because it was no secret that he had an admiration for Winchester's level lever action repeaters, especially uh, like the model 1895, which in the right hands was capable of getting off two to three shots per second. 
Roosevelt said, I may not shoot well, but I know how to shoot often. Fucking amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Accuracy by volume, sir. Um, surprised and pleased, he thanked the gentleman and promised to use the Winchester to avenge the Maine. Also forgot, uh, you know, just like we do every couple of, you know, instances, you know, remember the Alamo, remember 9-11, uh, remember the Maine was a big battle cry amongst the United States and it was a huge talking point. All these guys would be like, blah, 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 the U.S. Maine. Nah, I remember the Maine. So each day, horses for the troopers had been driven in a camp and bunches of 25 and 30 from Fort Sam Houston. Uh, the public notice from the quartermaster's department called horses that were well broken the saddle. But according to Oklahoma Bronco Buster Bill McGinty, the horse's purchase had, quote, hadn't been broke but once, if that. The first time the troopers were given the order mount, or at least, at least 300 horses began to buck by throwing riders left and right. McGinty you gotta said, punch them horses in the head, man. By the time the dust clear, them eastern boys were scattered all over Texas. <laughs> The, the dudes who weren't cowboys couldn't handle it, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, several of these Easterners, these rich guys, why the fuck am I using finger quotes? Uh, hired, <laughs> hired the more experienced horse riders in the regiment to take some of the devilish out of their, uh, out of their mounts. One Arizona cowboy was accepting money in advance for a guarantee that a horse would get written, ridden. Uh, these were just... There was just not enough time to ride all the wild Broncos uh, the New Yorkers were turning over to him. In addition to... I'm telling you, you just got to punch a horse in the head and display your dominance. Let it know. Boom. Drop that motherfucker. Um, and Calvary... So not only with trying to get these, these guys to uh, play nice with their horses, they also had to get the horses trained to ignore gunfire or at least put up with it. Otherwise, the first time a shell exploded on the battlefield, there would be another bucking expedition. To accomplish this, the troopers stood in formation, holding their mounts by the halter straps while the non-commissioned officers galloped around them on horseback, firing their colts in the air as fast as they could pull back the hammer. The first time huh. they did this, they got a stampede worse than anything seen on a cattle drive. Frightened <laughs> horses and men thundered away in a cloud of dust. And a few troopers who were able to hold on uh, frantically tried to pull themselves up as they were being dragged. Uh, oh, shit. Once most of the horses <laughs> had been distributed to the troops, regimental drill took place daily, and it was hardly any... Uh, any time at all before Roosevelt and his men were able to see real progress. One Harvard undergrad described the exhilarating mounted drills for family back home. 600 horses galloping in a column of fours is a fine wave of power. Uh, the dust lists up so thick that it's fog and you can barely see the next man ahead. Half blinded, wet with sweat, and the horses on both sides rubbing against your legs, you go tearing, galloping on. Then suddenly through the white wall of dust, you see the haunches of the horses ahead sink down and the hand shoot upward and with fingers spread apart, there is a quick jam, a creaking and rubbing of leather and they're off again. So they're, 
you know, they're drilling, they're getting ready. Um, on the that's wild, man. That's like that's so crazy. On the afternoon of May twentieth, the Rough Riders finally moved out of the exposition building and grandstand into several hundred dog tents. A simple two-piece affair. Each tent was designed for two men. The tents offered little relief from the stifling heat as they had been erected out in the open with no shade. In a, in a tent shade in itself, though? Yeah, but these are thick. They okay. absorb heat. Uh, okay, okay. Mess call, just a little idea of like regular day life. Mess call for supper was at 6 p.m. The meal was often followed by a baseball game. And then as the sun sank and men gathered in small groups to talk and joke uh, and sip coffee, music began to float over the camp. Several glee clubs had been formed, wrote one trooper. And there are dozens of banjo players in the camp, and among them are some really talented musicians. With all that music but no ladies to dance with, some rough riders put on stag dances, kicking up their heels in the dust until a bugle sounded taps for bedtime at 9 p.m. What the fuck? Uh, Wood and Roosevelt were surprised and delighted with how the regiment had come together and how rapidly the drills with the entire regiment, now more than 900 officers, uh, were improving. Wood wrote to McKinley that the regiment's progress was simply astounding, and he hoped the president would get a chance to see what a most exceptionally fine body of men they were. Uh, Roosevelt also wrote to the president from San Antonio, uh, I really think that the rank and file of this regiment is better than you would find in any other regiment anywhere. Oh, now he's talking shit. He's like, uh, my dudes know how to dance and party, so we're the fucking best. Although they were proud of the Rough Riders, there is letters, their letters also served as a not-so-subtle attempt to put the regiment on an equal footing with any regulars. Uh, quote, we are ready now to leave at any moment. And we earnestly hope we will be put into Cuba with the very first troops. The sooner, the better. Um, There's there's, uh, a couple of, let's see, blah, blah, blah. Roosevelt seemed to, um, there's officers and stuff, um, you know, just, but out of all these other officers and the list of men, Roosevelt seemed to connect with one uh, other than Wood. And that was Captain William Owen Bucky O'Neill of Troop A. The 38-year-old O'Neill gave his occupation as a lawyer when enlisting, but that was only one fact of an incredible career. Beginning in 1879, he worked for a string of Arizona Territory newspapers, including the famed Tombstone Epitaph, and had been a court reporter, Mm. a probate judge, a county sheriff, a school superintendent, a territorial adjunct general, and finally the mayor of Prescott, Arizona. In the midst of these endeavors, O'Neill wheeled and dealed in mining and real estate, becoming a wealthy man in the process. Oh, wow. Okay. So he had a little bit of adventure in him. Right. So startling news disrupted the Rough Rider camp the morning of May 26th. A Rough Rider was dead. Uh, Irad Cochran Jr. was just 19 years old. He had been running drills a few days earlier when he was thrown from his horse and struck the ground headfirst. 
Within mm. hours, a fever set in, bacterial meningitis, and he was taken to the post hospital at Fort Sam Houston, where he died. Cochran's That's funeral was held the next. Yes, it was. Uh, was held the next day at the conclusion of the service. Seven Rough Riders raised their carbines in unison as the entire regiment looked on in silence. Their head, uh, their heads bared. Uh, they faced a uh, they faced a blast ca casket containing Cochran's body in full uniform. The honor guard fired three sharp volleys. The regimental bugler played taps. Which fun fact about Dan? I can't listen to taps without crying like a little bitch. Oh, okay. That's that's just it's like Amazing Grace, you know. It's just I one of it. those things that are really uh, when they're played <clears throat> at funerals and stuff. It's just uh, it, it just brings on this emotion of sadness. No, I dig it. You just really caught me out of left field with that one. Like, even with Amazing Grace, like if I see it on a movie and stuff, I'll turn it off. And that <laughs> and that is uh, this part's uh, version of being real with Dan Brady. Finger guns. <laughs> <laughs> um, by the evening, his tragic end would be a distant, if unpleasant, memory. As his casket rode in a baggage car destined for New Mexico, a War Department clerk in Washington, D.C., tapped out a telegram with new orders for Colonel Wood. Those orders arrived at camp headquarters at 6 p.m., and Wood smiled as he silently read the telegram. The regiment was to leave in San Antonio immediately for Tampa, Florida and report to Major General William Shafter, commander of the 5th Army Corps. Because of its closeness to Havana, Tampa has been chosen as the debarkation point for the invasion of Cuba. Wood handed Man. the telegram to Roosevelt, who quickly scanned it. He looked at well Wood with shock and joy, then embraced his friend. After less than three weeks of training, they were heading off to war. First off, that sounds very ill-prepared, <laughs> honestly. Very. Extremely ill-prepared, but they're fucking so pumped over this shit. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. They also gave each other hand jobs later. <laughs> uh, the first problem was that the regiment was still not yet completely outfitted. Some men were, no way, the government didn't get supplies in time? There's no fucking way. Uh, some, don't say. Some men were waiting for the simplest of things, such as the cross saber insignia for their hats, while others were still without their rifles. No one seemed to know what happened to the shipment of machetes. Oh, shit. Got them all in your car, Johnny. Uh, whatever the reason for delays of the, the supplies, Wood was not about to let that keep his regiment out of the oncoming campaign, because of course not. Uh, He's like, they don't bother? got guns. Yeah. They don't got guns. Fuck them. Sheer willpower. But I can still get glory if they kill the Spanish with spoons. Uh, Yo, if I didn't have a gun and they're like, we're going into battle, I'm like, what the fuck do you want me to do? He would he would now downplay, just wait till you find another one. Uh, he now <laughs> downplayed. Horrible. He, he downplayed the importance of the machete, saying they were heavy and cumbersome and that they would only be used for cutting brush away. His men could do without him. In addition to the officers and men, there were 960 horses and 192 pack mules and 40 civilian mule packers. If they loaded 20 horses per stock car, which was the norm, the regiment would need 48 cars for the cavalry mounts alone. 
There is Ooh. also the regiment's provisions, tentage, saddles, bridles, uh, ammunition, crates, and fodder. Basically, a lot of shit. Okay. So they loaded all So this all was going to prevent them? No, it, it just a cumbersome order, you know, to uh, to get them to Tampa, you know. Okay, it's like in the movie Aladdin when he's coming into town with all that shit. Right. Uh, the American army assembling at Tampa was fast approaching 30,000 men. The camps of the uh, of the several regiments, most no, mostly regulars, stretched for miles. The Rough Riders let, lead train halted in a jumble of railroad cars and locomotives two miles from the depot on the evening of June 2nd. Colonel Wood had wired headquarters early in the day, given his approximate arrival time, but as he looked up and down the tracks, not a soul was to be seen. Hmm. So they're just kind of left there. Um, the Rough Rider camp, uh, eventually they'd be brought in. Uh, the, they didn't get the fanfare, basically, that they had gotten in San Antonio. Uh, the Rough Rider oh, camp. Were they disappointed in that? A little bit, I think. Oh, woo boo hoo. You know how much pussy was probably thrown at them, Johnny? A lot. I mean, it looks like uh, the way uh, Roosevelt was, though, he could just, like, summon it. <laughs> if, uh, if you don't spread your legs, it would be an act of treason. The Rough Rider camp was located a mile west of the Tampa Bay Hotel, in a broad sand flat surrounded by a scattering uh, of tall pines. The tents were laid out in the streets with picket lines for the horses running along with each row of tents. Uh, the boys were delighted to find Tampa pleasanter than San Antonio instead of worse, as they expected. Um, the greatest relief to be is to be away from the perfectly horrible dust, one trooper commented. And these guys are just living it the fuck up. So, Wood reorganized the regiment. Um, that meant that the Rough Riders now consisted of 12 troops. Each were divided into three squadrons. The first squadron consisted of three Arizona troops, A, B, and C, Oklahoma Territory Group D, the New Mexico troops E, F, and G, and H, and made up the second squadron. And the third squadron troops I and K were men from all over the country, while troops L and M came from in the uh, Native American territory. Several of the millionaire recruits ended up in K, which earned it the rather unflattering name Silk Stocking Troop. Silk Stocking Troop. Fancy boys, eh? Yep. Uh, call it what you will. I'll call it comfortable. So there's another rumor uh, from headquarters that only a portion of the regiment would sail with the first fleet to Cuba, and it might be as few as four troops. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Old Teddy's panicking. In the meantime... What? In the meantime, the Rough Riders were the main attraction at Tampa now, as they have been in San Antonio. Uh, one person described them as the lions of the camp. Yeah, I can see that because they're all like, uh, they're all like, uh, what's that called? Like soldiers of fortune? Yeah, you would have photographers uh, flood the, and journalists flood the camp, taking pictures of the men awake, sleeping, eating, chewing, smoking, talking, walking, riding, and shaving. Uh, and shaving? Is that yeah. what you said? Mm-hmm. 
and it wasn't just still pictures either. A cameraman for the Edison Kineto Scope Company filmed the Rough Riders on horseback as they cantered past them. Oh, I bet the people love that film. Several people mm, requested expeditions of horsemanship and pistol shooting, but Roosevelt said, fuck that. Uh, he politely denied their request, saying it was contrary to the regulations. The large number of sight seniors Sears became so disruptive to the mounted drills that Wood implemented a new policy. All visitors to the camp were required to have a pass. <clears throat> Man, that's how it starts. And now, then, then you skip ahead, boom, Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. On June 6th, word came that the Rough Riders should prepare to move at a moment's notice. But it was still uncertain who would go and who would stay. Finally, after an awful morning of worrying, uh, Roosevelt learned that eight of the 12 troops uh, would be going to Cuba. Each of the men okay, would, be better. would be limited to 70 men, which meant those troops selected would still have to leave behind 10 or more individuals. The men were not happy with the news, but Roosevelt felt as he had been granted a life-saving reprieve. He would now go <clears throat> as one of the two squadron commanders. Although Roosevelt could finally relax, the rest of the regiment remained as anxious as ever while Colonel Wood tried to determine which four troops to leave behind. Yeah, that's a good one. Who do you leave behind? Right. I'm sure that was hard. Uh, so denied their horses, the Rough Riders had to figure out how to carry their gear on their backs. So now they were just infantrymen. Uh oh, boy. <laughs> They were shown by a, uh, a career infantryman uh, how to pack themselves out. First, one and a half of the dog tent was spread out on the ground, and then the trooper's blanket spread on top of that, a rubber poncho, a change of underwear, socks, razors, uh, pills for malarial fevers, and any extra bandanas. Of course, you can't leave home without that. <laughs> were placed on the blanket, and the whole thing was rolled up, bent into a horseshoe shape, and tied at the ends. Uh, the pack was then slipped over the trooper's head. Uh, a tin cup hung from a hook on the wide cartridge belt, and a haversack slung over the shoulder carried each soldier's tin mess kit. Uh, especially important uh, thing, a canvas-covered canteen also hung from the belt. Missing from the belt was a leather holster for the Colt revolvers and their am ammunition, which were deemed to be too much extra weight. Only the huh. officers were allowed to bring their sidearms. As the men packed their gear, Roosevelt inventory well, his, his own essentials for the campaign. Marshall, his valet, organized while Roosevelt checked and double-checked, not knowing that there'd be no possibility Knowing there would be no possibility of replacing his eyeglasses in Cuba, Roosevelt ordered a dozen pairs before leaving. Uh, wow. He stashed eyeglasses everywhere so he can have an extra pair always close in case of emergency. One was si sewed inside of his hat. Um, another was sewed oh, wow. into his shirt. Two pairs were in his saddles bags and so on. Um he was a quintessential uh, Boy Scout before there were such things as Boy Scouts. For a sidearm, Roosevelt carried a revolver like no other in the entire invasion force. It was a Colt New Navy Model 1892 and 38 caliber, 
this is a cool fact. It had been salvaged from the wreck of the Maine and was presented to him by his brother-in-law, William S. Cowles, a Navy captain. Huh. <clears throat> that sounds pretty cool. So the following day, Wood was directed to have his eight troops at a certain railroad siding by midnight. And while they were boarded a train to make take them nine miles to the harbor, as a bright moonlit evening, and Wood had no trouble getting his men to the siding on time. But there is no train for them. Standing in formation, they waited and waiting. Finally, at 3 a.m., Wood was told to move to another side. Once their officers set up and down the line shouted, at rest. Um, at 6 a.m., they sighted a train approaching the siding, but it turned out to be a train of empty coal cars. And it wasn't what they had been promised, but it would do. Wood got the train stopped told the engineer he now had a load of rough riders to haul and ordered his men to get uh, on board with their supplies. Well, so this they, is very odd to me. So they passed a passenger train full of uh, New York regulars and they, they recognized them as the rough riders. So they began shouting, hello, Teddy, speech, speech. We want Teddy Roosevelt. We want Teddy Roosevelt. Show us your teeth, Teddy. We want Teddy. We want Teddy. But Roosevelt never appeared, but it gave the uh, Rough Riders a much-needed laugh. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> they couldn't find a ship to board. Uh, so after some time, the pair Wood and Roosevelt located the depot quartermaster, the man responsible for allotting transports. But it turned out that he had failed to allot a transport for the Rough Riders, which brought a sting of choice words from Roosevelt. The quartermaster nervously oh, shepherded, oh yeah, shepherded through his notes and assigned the Rough Riders to the Utican, uh, waiting out in the channel for a place at the pier. He advised the colonels to board the ship immediately, or they might lose their spot. What he didn't tell them <coughs> was that the ship had been allotted to the 71st New York. Um, stepping out of the quartermaster's office, Wood spotted a small motorboat, promptly commandeered it. As he spun out to take possession <laughs> of the Utican, uh, Roosevelt walked back to the men. After only a short distance, he learned that he had not only had their transport had been previously assigned to the New Yorkers, but to the 2nd U.S. Infantry as well. Um, that a 71st New York alone had more men than his ship could comfortably hold. Uh, Roosevelt broke into a run. He was definitely showing his teeth as he raced, raced up to his waiting men and began barking orders. Roosevelt left part of the regiment to guard the train with their supplies and double quick to the remainder uh, to the gangway where the Utican was to dock. The 71st arrived just after the Rough Riders where Roosevelt had so many of his men crowded around the gangway that no one could get close. Um, the commanding oh, so wow. Okay. I'm yeah. seeing what's happening now. Uh, so the commanding officer of the 2nd U.S. Infantry, who outranked Roosevelt, sent orders to the Rough Riders to move aside and allow his regiment to take possession. Uh, Roosevelt scribbled an evasive reply, stalling for a time as the Utican slowly approached. Seeing Wood at the ship's bow, Roosevelt began yelling and, the wood, and wood yelled back. What he was saying, I had no idea, Roosevelt recalled, but he was evidently speaking and on my own... Uh, 
and on my own responsibility, I translated it into directions to hold the gangway and so inform the regulars that I was under the orders of my superior and of ranking officer to my great regret, et cetera, et cetera. Um, wow, he's so full of shit. <laughs> now that they seized a transport, the next task was to retrieve the supplies and arrest the men that were about a mile away and the supplies including the heavy machine guns. Um, so all the ones who have already got in on the boats were ordered to get off and help fetch the precision. By 6 p.m., the regiment's supplies were loaded. Uh, Wood had permitted four companies of the 2nd Infantry and its brass band to board. So in total, there were 940 men crammed in the Utican, which had berthing for only 714. So they said, make sure the band gets on. Fucking fancy pants motherfuckers. The officers, including Roosevelt's little te horses, including little Texas, were in the hold of another boat. Finally, with the all on board excited, relieved, and dog tired, the Utican pulled away from the pier. The second infantry's band raised their instruments and began playing a hot time in the old town. The Rough Riders answered with cowboy yelps, and as the drums banged and cymbals crashed, the optimistic Ben Colbert and his comrades change the song's words there'll be a hot time in cuba next week so this is at the end of part one it's a long episode a lot of information but a lot of fun yeah yeah it was um next uh part two we're going to talk about san juan hill cuba teddy roosevelt and his big dick uh, i hope you guys are excited <laughs> i am too i'm very excited all right johnny uh Everybody, you have a good night. I hope you enjoyed listening to this. Uh, as always, follow us on social media at What in the History Pod. Uh, <clears throat> like, share, subscribe. Tell us what you think. And uh, I hope you're looking forward to part two as much as I am. Peace and love. It was a moonless night. I was 18 years old. Life was going nowhere It was midnight at the railroad tracks Miles away from anywhere I said my dark prayer suit and black hair Smile on his face Ribbons on his chest He seemed to walk on air He promised to get me Out of this town I'd be handsome, wealthy and brave I'd travel the world be powerful, but a slave until my grave. Now it's raining in the desert. I said, Oh, it's gonna rain on me. I'm just another of the devil's dogs. Would they ever want with me? Sign my name.
Oh, 